Right, well, sometimes it's good to maybe step back a little bit and look at it as what, what you believe. And particularly when it comes to Christianity, you've got to realize that there are some things that can sound very strange to what we say to the outside, outside ear. Think about it. We believe that God came to earth in the form of a man. Now, now just, just think about how bizarre that is. If you have no church background, no, no perspective of, of what the Bible says, that, that's just a strange thing that God would come and, and be among us, especially when we describe God as so different and holy from us. Or, or think about this, that we believe that Jesus raised from the dead. A man died, was really dead, and raised from the dead. We believe that he ascended into heaven just right in front of the apostles, just kind of, kind of just lifted up and kept going. That's a strange belief. We believe that we will be raised from the dead. Quite a few of us were at a funeral yesterday and the casket was there about to be lowered down into the vault. And yet we believe that though we're in a casket, though we're in a vault, though we're six feet under, we will raise from the dead. But perhaps I think none of our beliefs can match the strangeness when it comes to our attitude towards the blood. Blood can be seen many times a detestable thing. In fact, some people I know faint at the sight of blood. There's a great Christensen here. I saw him, saw him earlier, but I, I believe his testimony is that he will faint at blood. And yet, think about what, what we've sung. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We began our service this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We are placing our hope on blood. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We sing about blood with joy. We rejoice in blood. And we even call it precious blood. Have you ever thought about how strange this is? And it goes even further. John 6, when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food, and My blood is true drink. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. Eating His blood, drinking His body... And that's been the practice of the Christian church. has always been the Lord's Supper to celebrate. As we will at the end of my message today, when Jesus said, took some bread, broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this remember to me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. And that's what caused first century Christians to be accused by their unbelieving, un- understanding um, contemporaries, Romans, that... Christians are cannibals because they eat flesh and they drink blood. And they didn't understand that Jesus even said, clarified himself, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken are, are spirit and life. But people don't understand this, but they're so fixated on the, 
on uh, just the literalness of it. But we are fixated on the blood of Jesus because the blood has brought us life. I mean, think about just some of the things that the Bible says the blood has done. We have been justified by his blood. Justified, made right with God. In Him we have redemption through His blood. His blood becomes the path of our redemption. In Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who are far off been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 13.12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. 1 John 1.7 that we read at the beginning of our service. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This blood cleanses us, right? Revelation speaks about those who are washed in the blood. Revelation 5.9, Worthy are you, this is um, Christ being exalted in heaven, to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, and open its seals. For you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed men from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. His blood bought people. Acts 20.28 says that Jesus Christ purchased the church with His blood. So we sing about the blood, we sing about the cross, as Robert Murray McShane said, <clears throat> the mighty cross has become a tree of life to me. The mighty cross has become a tree of life to me. We live because of His death and we gladly sing about His blood because His blood infers His death and He died for us. Warren Wiersbe said this, <clears throat> any theology that ignores or minimizes blood isn't found in the Word of God. So we take blood, this whole emphasis on the blood, we minimize it, it's not found in the Word of God because blood is central to our faith. Now, our chapter this morning is a bloody chapter. Leviticus chapter 17. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. Blood's mentioned 13 times in these 16 verses. We find ourselves here in Leviticus 17, halfway through the uh, book of Leviticus. In fact, here's a, here's a picture of the book of Leviticus for you, just in the, just the briefest of, of ways. We've worked through Leviticus 1 through 15, and that describes how we come to God by, by priests and by sacrifices and being clean. Chapter 16 speaks about the Day of Atonement we looked at last week, when the, the priest would come once a year into the high place to offer sacrifice to cleanse the entire nation. And now the last 11 chapters here, verses 7, chapter 17 through 27, is how we live for God. This has been described also as the holiness code. How it is that we flush out seeking to be holy. It's the way Israelites were to live. And, and chapter 17 just starts us off into the holiness code. It deals with how uh, people should treat the blood of sacrifices and Food to eat. So let's let's read beginning in verse one. Then and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifice that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting 
and sacrifice them as sacrifices, a peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This should be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. In verses 1 through 7, we see regulations concerning sacrificial animals. What, what you're supposed to do, these are, these are animals that actually you're going to planning on eating. And, and the basic command goes like this. If you've got an ox or a lamb or a sheep and you sacrifice it, you need to make sure that that comes before the Lord. And so that it's presented as a, a peace offering. So it says there in, uh, I think it's verse 5, it's a peace offering to the Lord. So you, you, you slaughter your animal like you always did. Chapter 3 talks about the peace offering. We went over that several months ago. And you bring it to the priest, and the priest then takes the blood, <clears throat> sprinkles it on the altar, takes out the fat, burns it on the altar. And then, since it's a peace offering, you get it back because you've been offering it to the Lord, and you can take it home and eat much of it. For instance, if you're going to have a party, maybe someone's birthday, you're going to have some kind of birthday celebration. You, um, you, know, you gather all your family together, 50, 100 people, and you're going to have a goat, you know, just kind of how they did back then. They... they uh, slaughter the fattened calf or the, the goat or a lamb or something. A lot of you, you need to you need to take that lamb and you need to first present it to um, to the priest and to the Lord before you can eat of it. In fact, that's not all that these verses talk about, because verse seven speaks about the, the reason behind why they are going to do this. <clears throat> they shall no longer so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Now, we don't know who these goat demons look like. Our best guess is that they look like satyrs from Greek mythology. Satyr, S-A-T-Y-R. Who does this look like, kids? Maybe you know some of this. Who does it look like? Mr. 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 Tumnus, right? And he's called what? A fawn. This is the best guess, but we don't really know because it's a rare word. But it's somehow it's a goat demon. It's a it's a demon looks like a, a goat they're offering to. We don't know what exactly this demon was, but we do know that they were idol worshippers in the camp of the Israelites. So, so when you think about the Israelites coming back, don't think tremendously godly people. Even within coming out of the Exodus, out of the plagues, they picked up maybe some Egyptian uh, religion. And they were worshiping idols, sacrificing to these goat demons, thereby breaking the first two commandments. You shall not have any gods before me and before no idol. Bend the knee. And that's why verse 4 speaks about an incredibly severe punishment. Look what verse 4 says. If he does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, right, because he's offering it to the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. And we don't know what it means to cut off. It's either banishment away or it's death. At any rate, one would be expelled from Israel, no longer around the, the people of God. Now, let's just think about this command for a little bit. <clears throat> I, I trust you're going to see how impossible it is to keep. Because, um, think about every time you want to have an ox or a lamb or goat for dinner, which was somewhat regular, um, you'd have to go to the tabernacle. Now, what if you lived... Um, up in the Galilee region. Remember when Mary and Joseph came from Nazareth up in the Galilee region to Bethlehem, which was down a little bit south of Jerusalem? How many days does it take? It takes a couple days 
two, three days to walk that hike. So imagine, you, oh, let, we're going to have the, we're going to have this feast. Let's take the, the fattened calf all the way down there. It's going to walk all the way down there. It's not going to be fat anymore. It's going to burn a lot of its fat off anymore. And so it gets down there. You slaughter it. And by the time you get back up two days to cook the thing for the feast, it's not going to be good anymore. Unless maybe you cook it and then bring it. Or, or you got to do something. So it, it's really practically impossible. Without refrigeration, there's no way it, it'd come back in time. So how's that going to work? Well, I think the key to understanding this chapter is to understand the original Readers, they were wandering in the desert, right, with a with a camp uh, in the middle, with the, the tent of meeting in the middle, and then you had all the twelve tribes of Israel all around the camp. Now, this picture doesn't quite do it justice because it looks like these are just little little, little encampments and they're all just right right close. But you, you think about a million people spread out, a million or two came out of Egypt, so you got it's a lot bigger and more. More deep than that, but even if you had a city of a million people, a, a tent structure of a million people, how long would it take to get to the center? Just a few hours walk, tops. And so I think that they could do that. And furthermore, the wandering in the wilderness, their main diet wasn't ox or lamb or goat. Their main diet was what? It was the manna that was coming down from heaven. And so they didn't have meat very often, but when they did have meat, this luxury occasion, it was a rare occasion, they could go to the tabernacle. But when they settled the promised land, all of a sudden you're a lot further spread out. A couple days walk, it's not going to work. And in fact, Deuteronomy, which is Moses' last book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's Moses' last sermons, spoken his 40th year, right before they're entering the land. Listen to what Deuteronomy 12 says. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord that the Lord your God has given you. In other words, you don't have to take it to Jerusalem. You don't have to take it where the tabernacle is because all of a sudden you spread out now and this would be sort of unreasonable to, uh, to accomplish. So what we have here at the beginning of Leviticus 17 is a, is a law that's applicable for only 40 years to that generation. So how do you understand this? Well, I trust that you remember this chart. I've shown it a couple times in going through Leviticus, where Leviticus was written to the people of Israel, and uh, Leviticus was not written to us. You remember that? So if it's not written to us, we don't go that path. We have to first go through Israel, and then by application, once we understand that, we can come to us today. And particularly then... Leviticus was written before the cross, so you, 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 go, you go through the cross. So there are certain things like uh, sacrifices and priests and eating laws that stopped at the cross. But there are other things, like it's commanded First Peter, that you should be holy for I am holy, that went through the cross. It's a moral code that is, is applicable to us. And you need to keep this in mind, especially when you're understanding the Old Testament, but even the New Testament as well. If you go to a place like Corinth, you need to, to go to Corinth first and then come to us. Or one of the pastoral epistles. Realize it's written to a pastor. And then, after you understand that, then you can come to us. Now, let's change this a little bit. Let's put our, our sacrifices and priests and, and eating laws up there a little bit. And so, let's think about Leviticus 17, uh, 1 through 9. So, how does, how does that apply? Well, as we think about traveling through time, it's going to come and it's going to stop at Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy express, expressly, Deuteronomy 12, stops that commandment because all of a sudden you're in the land, it's 40 years later, you're in the land and you can't practically do this. 
So, next we've got to think then about us. How does this apply to us? Here's my take, okay? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to bridge this gap here from 40 years in the wilderness to, I mean, this, we're talking 3,400 years when it stopped being applicable. We're, and uh, what, I, what I'm applying it to is this, is that we're, we're called to seek unity. I think that's fundamental what was happening here with, with the Israelites. The Jews would bring their animals for sacrifice. It was a way for the people to show support for the entire community of Israel. See, they weren't off just doing their own things. Rather, what were they doing? They were said, yes, we're a God worshiper and we are bringing our sacrifice to the leadership of the camp, to the priest, seeking their blessing, seeking the peace offering, acknowledging the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, unified together. The whole purpose of camp, we are in this together. I'm not just doing my own thing on the, on the camp. And so that's where you need to seek unity. Now, I'm not telling you, every time you want to do anything, come to the elders of the church and we'll, we'll, we'll like approve what you're saying and doing. I said, no, that's, that's not, I want to empower you for ministry like I, I wrote in the weekly word if you read that article. Just empower it and, and go do it. But there's got to be some sense though where whatever you do, it's, you're not just off on your own doing your own thing. You are in some sense seeking the, the unity of the church, acknowledging what, what you're doing and and you're supporting that unity. In fact, I think this is the application of, of verses 8 and 9 as well. So we'll just kind of lump those in to make that 8, 9, and 1 through 9. And you shall say to them, anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Right? In other words, I think there are probably people who were maybe doing this or thinking about doing this or having, kind of having their little own home sacrifice kind of thing going on. He said, no, you, know, you don't sacrifice the home. You bring it to the priest where, um, where, where the temple is or where the tabernacle is or, or in the center where the, the anointed priests are and you come and bring your, your sacrifice there. Now, what's interesting is though the location of the, the tabernacle changed locations from the wilderness of, of Shiloh, of the wilderness to Shiloh to Jerusalem, I think the principle still stood clear. If you're going to offer a sacrifice unto the Lord, you need to bring it to where the altar is. You need to bring it to the place designated by God. Right? It's, it's good intentions are not good enough, right? What's going to happen to that dog, kids? playing fetch with a stick. It's going to blow up. He had good intentions though, right? He saw that dynamite out there. He said, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And that's bad news. And I think likewise, the Lord, good intentions towards the Lord sometimes is not, not quite good enough because He wants to be with Aaron and his sons where the altar was, where His presence was. You're not to do just your own thing in worship. And we just think about um, in worship how often we've seen that the penalty is death. I mean, Nadab and Abihu or last time when the priest enters the holy place, if he comes in a wrong way, lest he die. Just that whole death scenario is, is just right there. And, and, and it's interesting, if you look here at 8 and 9, there's nothing here about sacrificing to goat demons I think that these people are sacrificing to the Lord, but not doing it at the tent of meeting. Or I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt they're doing that. Certainly if they're idol worshiping, they should, be, they should be cut off. They shouldn't be doing that. But I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Even if they're trying to worship the Lord, you worship the right Lord in the wrong way, and it's not 
it's not going to help. It's not going to be right. It could have some bad consequences. And, and so I think about, okay, the church, how is it that we show unity? Well, one of the ways we show unity is right here on Sunday morning, just gathering together. In fact, I think that's a good place of application here this morning as we do what we do so as to show unity. This is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. As Phil mentioned, Hebrews is the New Testament commentary on the book of the Old Testament. And here we talk about the change that we've got a, a different priest and we're going to a holy place. So what's the implication of it? Let's read this all together. If you can read that. Yeah, you can. Let's read it together. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've highlighted that point about meeting together because I think that's a way that we can show unity in the body of Christ, this local assembly, in a way that, that they did as well, because the sacrifices were about their, their worship, their corporate, their corporate worship. Um, and, I, and I think that this comes alongside of, of seeking unity. Now, you're all here this morning, so I don't need to press upon you the importance of, of gathering on, on Sundays just to, to show that unity. Um, but as a church, I would encourage you to make every effort to be here. 10 o'clock Sunday mornings. This is the one time when we gather. We gather in small groups on Sunday nights. We gather for other various Bible studies, which are good and profitable. But this is the time we can show great unity together. And did you stir, notice also what, what surrounds this commandment in verse 25? Verse 24, look at, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not, not forsaking our own assembling, but encouraging one another. We've got stirring people up. We've got encouraging one another. That's the purpose of your, your gathering together. Yes, we gather together for worship, but when we gather together, it's also for the building up. It's for the encouragement. See, there's enough in this world to tear you down. There's enough in this world to discourage you. And our Sunday morning gatherings are, are, are designed so as to counter that. To, to stir you up in worship and to encourage you, certainly. But also, I think that what surrounds our Sunday morning prayer uh, service here this morning, we had prayer beforehand at 9 o'clock. You're invited to that. And afterwards, I encourage you to hang around because that's every bit as important. If you just come in, warm a pew, wonderful, we're glad you're here. But if you leave, I'm going to ask you, how are you stirring up people and how are you encouraging people if you're not even talking to anybody? The whole idea of coming is to show unity and is to communicate and speak with each other. And so I would encourage you after Sunday morning service, we're, we're gathering together. And so we have an opportunity to speak with each other, encourage, or whether that happens before the service. When you see people, stir them up to love and good deeds. It's what Israel was supposed to do in terms of unity. I think this is a, a unity for us as well. And then, and then beyond that, I would say make efforts to be um, with other believers, and whether that's people of the church, whether it's people across of other churches, just find places where even with your other 
places at other churches. I mean, that, there can be where the whole unity of the church, the whole the whole universal church even shows its way. But we've got various Bible studies and meetings and accountability groups. You just you just talk around. You can you can find those and be with those to encourage one another, just not just once a week. I mean, the idea here of, of Hebrews 10 is, I think, that they were meeting together often. And I would encourage you to to make time and an effort to do that. Place a priority there. As I mentioned before, last yesterday, we are at a funeral service for Andy's mom, Juanita Salih. And um, towards her later years, unable to drive, and she had, I don't know what you call it, one of those um, electric scooters. Why do you call it? A power chair. Okay, and uh, so she was around in a power chair, and she just loved going to church. She was going to church at Sunday morning, Sunday at night, and Wednesday service. A very church-focused thing rather than community-focused, home-based more a little bit. But, but she couldn't drive. She couldn't get there. So she would call people. Hey, are you going? Can, can you give me a ride? You me? And the pastor said that if the third person said they couldn't get it, she'd pick up the phone and call the fourth. If the fourth person couldn't help her, he's going to call, she's going to call the fifth just to get there because she wanted to be with the people of God. And, and that testimony is so strong that uh, someone talked to afterwards said, well, I guess all of us able-bodied people have no excuse for not getting any place. Because it was amazing, her testimony, how zealous she was to get out on her, her little scooter. So also, just you think about Rockville. Don't, don't think I'm just going down the list and just say, okay, who's here, who's not here? And my, my heart is that I would stir you to be here from love, not from external pressure, because that's pleasing to the Lord. External pressure is outward appearances. It's not, it doesn't count for a lot. And know that I, as a pastor, make a lot of excuses for those who miss. Just, I'm probably over-liberal on that. I'm not a strict judge of Sunday attendance. I know of travel. I know of sickness. I know of family events. I know of uh, special occasions in lives. I know things come up. I, I know how that works. But I would say this. You just think in your hearts, as you have opportunities to gather, what's your pattern? Do you, do you, do you spill over and seek to do what you can? To show unity, to be amongst, and to find the encouragement, the meeting together, or do you walk away from those opportunities? Are you content with the Jesus and me moment? You know, there are many who are content with that. I got me. I got Jesus. I got my Bible. I got a John Piper sermon. I'm all good. I'm good. What else do I need? Well, they're, they're, not, they're not showing unity. That's just like, I think, sacrificing Apart from the temple. That's where I'm getting this whole idea of, of meeting together. Proverbs 18, verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. See, the body needs you. You need the body. How about Ephesians 4, 1 through 6? Let's read that together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you... <clears throat> The calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all. It's a verse that speaks, surpasses, it speaks about unity. Unity in Christ. 
There's one, there's one, there's one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it, it, it just says that in order to have that, there's a, there's a unity that needs to take place. And it, oftentimes it's very stretching. Unity is not an easy thing that just kind of happens. Unity is a stretching thing. In fact, look at verse 2 there about how stretching it is. It says, in order to get this unity, verse 3, you're eager to maintain it. You need to have humility. You need to have patience. You need to have gentleness. And you need to have, have this bearing with one another in love perspective. Because when you're with a group of people, you're going to get sinned against. And if you don't have love, that's easily a rift. And if you don't have humility, you're going to rift as well. And if you don't have a gentleness or patience, you can't have this unity. And so it is, it is very stretching, but God desires it. And I think that's the issue. That's the, the thing that we can take out of this commandment that was only 40 years lived. Just when you worship, make sure you come. If you're going to have your feast, make sure you come to give thanks to the Lord in these things. So seek unity. Seek unity. Come where God has prescribed to come. Well, let's move on. Our second point, we've seen seek unity. Now we're going to seek life. And this is where we get into the blood. Verses 10 through 16. Um, ten times blood is mentioned in these seven verses. We're going, to, we're going to go a lot of blood. Here we go. Verse 10. And anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, if any of them eats the blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in his blood, in the blood. And I have given it to you, for you, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone else, anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourns among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by peace, whether he's a native or sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening then he, shall be un- then he shall be clean. And if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Again, I, I hope you see that just the, like all of these sections here, there's about four sections this passage. Which says, if someone does this, right, rather, rather than this, he shall be cut off because of some reason or another. But just different circumstances of different things doing. And here, here's talking about eating blood. In verse 10, we see how strongly God views those who eat blood. It's not simply that that person will be cut off, like verse 4 says, and like verse 9 says, but God says that He Himself will see to it. Look at verse 10 again. And if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers or soldiers among them eats any blood, here God says, I myself, I will set my face against that person. And I will cut him off from among his people. It's like, it's like God is going to get you. You don't know when, you don't know how, but his face is going to be against you. Now just think about those in the wilderness 
they knew what it was that God was against them because everybody from the age 20 years and up from the time of Joshua and Caleb failing to enter the land, they all passed away before they entered. And so God's eye was upon all those 20 years or older. They knew full well how it was that he could go after people. Well, two reasons are given for not eating blood. First of all, is because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the second is that God has given the blood to make atonement for souls. You can see that right there in verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right? Don't eat the blood because that's where the life is. Second reason, verse 11. Don't eat the blood because I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. The first reason has to do with physical life. The second reason has to do with spiritual life. I want to just consider this first reason. It's in the blood. Life is in the blood. You know, I did some research about blood this week, and blood's amazing. Brian, you probably know all about blood. Amy, you probably know a lot about blood. And um, Cassie's not here today. She could tell us a lot about blood. Some of you also in the medical profession could. But here's some things, amazing things about blood. Blood, it's got different components. Red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, plasma. Human blood appears red because it contains iron. Healthy bone marrow makes a constant supply of blood. Average adult has about 10 pints of blood in his body. About 8% of the body weight. Body weight 40% that weight is cells and 55% is plasma. The, the red blood cells carry oxygen to the body's organs and tissues. You have, in each of you, 100,000 miles of blood vessels and capillaries which that blood gets pumped through. 100,000 miles. Red blood cells typically complete a circuit in uh, about 30 seconds. So it goes out of, of the, the blood into the lungs, back into the blood, and then through the body, and then back about 30 seconds. It can take, well, it's shorter if it's closer by, and longer if it's way down in, in your toes. Red blood cells live about 20, 120 days. So every 120 days, the blood is, is renewed. One small drop of blood has millions of red blood cells. A milliliter of blood has five to 7,000 white blood cells in them. And when you're sick, it goes up because it's got to fight against infection. I don't know. These are granulocytes are like a white blood cells that, that go along the, um, the edge of your blood vessels looking for any kind of bacteria that can clean up. It's like your street cleaners kind of go through there. That they can engulf and destroy. Platelets help with blood clotting. Plasma is, is this yellow mixture of water, proteins, and salts, which carries it along, gives it a, a fluidity. Over your lifetime, you'll pump 1.5 million barrels of blood through your body. It's like 200 train tank cars. It's a long train. Some of you barely started from your kids. Some of your older folks have... Pumped a lot of those. Blood carries oxygen, essential chemicals where they need in the body. Sometimes it picks up waste as well. Blood cells carry heat to our bodies, keep our fingers warm. So if your fingers are cold for any reason, do some cardio. Get, get your heart going and you'll get some uh, more heat going there. But it, but it brings heat to your extremities, but it also takes heat away from your, your liver, heart, muscles, and brain because they might overheat. So it, it takes heat away and gives heat. Mosquitoes prefer those with O-type blood. Uh, 
You know, today's someone's birthday. Who, whose birthday's today? You guys know? Whose birthday's today? Yeah, who said that? George Washington's birthday. George Washington had an interesting spout with, with blood. 2 a.m., December 14th, 1799. He almost lived in the 1800s, didn't he? He woke up with a sore throat, 2 in the morning. His doctors came to visit him. They, they looked. After a series of medical procedures, they drained 40% of his blood. And you know what happened on December 14, 1799, when George Washington woke up with a sore throat? What happened? He died. Why? Because life is in the blood and they took the blood out of him. Blood's amazing. Without blood, life just simply would not exist. And God calls the Israelites to abstain from blood, not to eat of it. Because, here it is, the blood represents life. And we're not to destroy that life. See, when a Jew would slaughter an animal for food, the blood must be drained. Verse 13 says that. You need to drain it. That's true for Jews today. If something's going to be considered kosher, the, the animals need to be drained. The, the blood needs to be drained from the animals. Gordon Wenham, Gordon Wenham puts it well in his commentary. He says, at a basic level, this is obvious. When an animal loses blood, it dies. Its blood, therefore, gives it life. By refraining from eating flesh with blood in it, man is honoring life. To eat blood is to despise life. This idea emerges most clearly in Genesis 9-4, where the sanctity of human life is associated with not eating blood. Thus, one purpose of the law is the inculcation of respect for all life. In fact, I think this is why verse 13 speaks about if you're out in the field hunting your game. Did you get a coyote yesterday? No, I didn't. Okay. Chad was hunting coyote yesterday. I was hoping he'd get one. But if you're out, I don't even know if coyotes are clean food or not. I don't know. I've got to review Leviticus 11. Probably not. No. Okay, anyway, you, you, you kill the coyote. But if you're out there, if you kill some kind of animal that you're hunting for, you've got to drain its blood if you're going to eat it. And you drain it on the blood. Do you know what you do with the blood that's on the ground? Did you catch it? Verse 13? Cover it with dirt. And I think giving the life substance a proper burial is, I think, what's, what's happening there. Because if you don't drain the blood, to eat the flesh is to eat the blood is to eat the life as well. So I just say this, let's, let's seek life by not eating the blood. That's what they're saying. Now, all sorts of questions. Now, what about us today? Okay, this whole, whole Leviticus triangle thing, is this applicable to us today or not? Or, or what about that rare steak? Or what about my blood sausage that I like? What about that? Is it okay to drink blood today? Well, it's difficult because... The whole idea about eating blood is not grounded in the Jewish dietary law. It's actually grounded in creation. Genesis 9, verse 4, God told Noah, You shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. Don't eat the flesh with its blood. Yet, Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark seven nineteen, Because it's not what goes into us that defiles us. It's that which comes out of our heart that defiles us. It's our sin that defiles us. So, I think it's permissible to eat your blood sausage, eat your rare steak. Jesus said we're not going to be defiled by what goes outside. But here's what I'd say. If it, if it causes offense, abstain. 
Um, if there's some connection with what you're doing with the occult, like when I think of the occult, I think about taking glasses of, of blood and kind of drinking it. It's coming down here, you know, Satan worship. We're going to drink the blood. Don't don't do that. It's like it's too much occultish kind of thing. If it's gross, don't eat it. You know, a couple months ago, we had some uh, what what was that? We had some chicken. You got to help me on this. I didn't talk to you about this. We had some chicken wings, chicken no, chicken legs and and thighs. And uh, we started cutting those open and eating it. And that blood was just gushing all over the place. Like from the bones. Because what happened was it wasn't in the meat. It was in the bones that when you, you cooked it and somehow you, you got it. It was just, it was red and it was nasty. And it was gross. We, and then we figured out how to cook it right. You got to like soak it in brine for a while. And, and then it didn't taste so good. So... Anyway, if it's gross, don't, don't eat it. And it was interesting how naturally blood is kind of repulsive. And I think that's inbred into us a little bit like snakes are kind of repulsive. I think bred into us, that's just how God made us. We just inherently know there's something not, not right about that. But it, very interesting also, we talk about whether it's applicable to us or not. Remember the first council of the church at Jerusalem, at, recorded in Acts chapter 15, there were some that saying, well, you become a Christian now, you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And so they're trying to circumcise all these Gentiles. In a sense, being circumcised is like the, the tip capstone of you need to keep the whole law. And there's big discussion about it, big debate. And of course, the apostles then landed, praise the Lord, landed right, is that we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by keeping the law in, in any way. Um, which leads to the bigger, bigger question, well, are there any things in the law that you need to keep? And the apostle said, no, you don't have to be circumcised. But they did put some restrictions upon the Gentiles. Listen to what they said. They wrote this letter, sent it out by Barnabas and Paul, and he said, For it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. These are your requirements, they said. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what's been strangled. And from sexual immorality, if you keep yourself from these things, you'll do well. I think these things were, were told to abstain from them because the, Jew, the Jewish culture, was, that was so abhorrent to them. Anything sacrificed to an idol. That's why 1 Corinthians um, 8 through 10 speaks so much about food sacrificed to idols. And this whole deal about things being strangled. What's wrong with a, an animal strangled? Blood's not poured out. So don't eat that because you'll be eating the blood as well. And don't eat the blood as well. So don't do these things. Abstain because it would be so offensive to the Jewish people. And so I think in an effort to keep the unity of the church, they bound these things. And I think for several hundred years, Christians kept to those things. And I think after that, there was a loosening um, of those things. But if you have a, a Jewish friend, and uh, don't serve your blood sausage when you're inviting your Jewish friend over. And by the way, one thing before we turn to the reason number two about seeking life, about the atonement, and that's where we get to Jesus and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. But I just want to say that Jehovah Witnesses will take this expression in Acts 15, verse 29, you need to abstain from blood, that you should abstain from all types of blood, including blood transfusions. All I got to do is think about that for a little bit. When we're talking about blood in the Old Testament, we're talking about eating blood. That's clear even from Leviticus chapter 17. We're talking about destroying life. But blood that's been given, that's life-giving. And that's totally the opposite of what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about eating blood, kind of you're, you're going against the honor of that life, but if that blood can still live on in your body and save your life, and boy, i got to do is look up blood centers. How many 
as I was looking at blood, I, I did. How many people's lives are saved because of blood transfusions? That's life giving. We ought not to be against that in any way. In fact, little tidbit, I found out that um, the president's limousine he drives, he's got blood matching his blood type right there in the limousine. Just a little fact. It's a trivia question someday. What's in the trunk of a, the limousine? So, but anyway, it's life giving. All right, let's, let's turn to the second one and we'll, we'll just go straight for Christ because that's where this is that God has given us his blood to make atonement for our souls. The second half of verse 11 is right there. The principle of the Old Covenant is this, is atonement takes place through the blood. That's what all this stuff is really teaching us about. Leviticus 17, life is in the blood. The blood is what's giving life. And atonement comes through the blood that is shed. As the writer of the Hebrews says, right, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Isn't this the message of of Leviticus chapter 1, chapter 3, 4, and 5, right? Bernie grains pacify sinny's guilt. Chapter 1, burnt offering. Chapter 3, peace offering. Chapter 4, the sin offering. Chapter 5, the guilt offering. And all these blood was shed. The only sacrifice which blood wasn't shed was the grain offering, which was more of a, a thank offering, usually to support the priesthood. You bring your, your unleavened bread mixed with oil, then you give it to the priest. You remember when I preached on that, we tasted that bread, what it tasted like. It's good. It was cooked. But in one instance, in the case of extreme poverty, uh, a grain offering was accepted for forgiveness of sins rather than a, a blood offering. You can read about that. I think it's in Leviticus chapter 4. If you can't afford a bull, you can't afford your goats, you can't afford even two turtle doves and pigeons, well, you can, you can sacrifice your, your bread. And there are some people out there who say, oh, look, look, there's the exception. See, it doesn't have to have blood for the forgiveness of sins. And I, I guess maybe I would say this. Might it be that God looked down upon that grain offering by grace as someone who couldn't even afford two little birds and imputed to them a righteousness the same way that he imputes to us righteousness by faith. We believe in God as Abraham did. It's reckoned to him as, un- as righteousness, right? So we believe in Jesus and he reckons it to us as righteousness. Could it be that in that one exception without shedding blood that God took the offering and imputed that righteousness to the poor and downtrodden who couldn't afford some birds? See, it's the exception that one I think that proves the rule of how it is true that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In fact, you think about all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were, were pictures of the coming atonement. And every single one of the sacrifices were, was short-lived at best. You think about the, uh, the high priest once a year. Um, that would last tops 365 days. That would probably lasted like an hour once he got out there and Israel's sinning again. All the sacrifices were temporary. That's the difference between the Jesus sacrifice. And you read through Hebrews, you get that, that, that the Old Testament sacrifice is just temporary. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins like forever, but Christ is the one who came and took away sins forever. Just consider what the blood of Jesus accomplished. Look at these things. I mentioned these earlier in my message, but I thought it would be good to put them up here on the screen just to reflect upon them. How Romans 5, 9 the blood of Jesus justified us. 
just as if I never sinned. And just as if I lived a perfect righteous life. That's what it means. You are in the court of law. You are considered totally innocent. That's what the blood has done. Redemption. The, the, the blood becomes this, this, this uh, financial account that he could purchase us in the marketplace. We have the judicial forgiveness. We have the marketplace terminology. We have this covenantal terminology, Ephesians 2.13, that we've been far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 13.12, we've been sanctified through His own blood. We've been washed, been purified. His blood, I mean, you take it to the laundromat and His blood washes us. It cleanses us, 1 John 1.7, cleanses us from all sin. It, it frees us, Revelation 1.5, it, it frees us from our sins by His blood through His love. And Jesus Christ actually purchased the church. With his blood. Again, the redemption terminology. So we think about the blood of Christ. I just say this we need to be careful, though, because there is a, a circle of Christianity that looks superstitiously to the blood of Jesus as if it's got this magical power. In fact, that's, that's just straight out. That's, that's why satanic worship is filled with uh, the drinking blood and taking that in because of this belief that the, the, the blood itself has this like, like special magic power. And people think that the blood of Jesus, the actual physical drops of Jesus, have this special power. Um, his blood was like our blood, by the way. It was His life that was lived and empowered by the Spirit of God, which then gave His death so much power and strength. One man said this, most of the occurrences of the word blood in the Old Testament indicate death by violence. The focal point of the mention of blood was not of blood flowing through the veins, but rather on the blood shed, which means a life had ended. So so if you die of old age, all your blood is intact, but when your blood is shed and you die, it's because violence has taken place. And that's the idea of Christ on the cross Shedding his blood. It was a violent death. And it was his death that atones. He died that we might live. There wasn't this magical thing in his, in his uh, blood. In his dying, certainly he bled. In his dying, he justified us, redeemed us, and brought us near, sanctified us, cleansed us, washed us, purchased us, and freed us. But you know, there's some people who plead the blood of Jesus on their, on their prayers. As if, as if there is, there's some, some magic power in this blood of Jesus. There's no magic power in the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood in the sense there's power in the death of Christ. That is for sure. But pleading the blood of Jesus has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. No one ever pleads the blood of Jesus. And it just, it's just kind of like a superstitious thing. Well, as long as I say the right words, as long as I cross my fingers just right, then God will, will do that. Obviously, that's not, that's not the case. We're talking here, though, about death. It's the, it's the blood. It's through His violent death upon the cross that His life was able to accomplish all these things in His death for us. So let's think about the Lord's Supper. Right in the, the night in which Jesus betrayed, he, he took the bread and the cup, and He had a lot of this imagery there in His mind. As you're just thinking about um, the flashes of my body. And he's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about in the cup, in the, in the fruit of the vine there. He's not talking about his real blood. 
But he's talking about everything that represents. What does it represent? It represents his, his body and blood broken for us. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. And all who are trusting in Christ today can certainly take of that. If you're visiting with us today and are trusting in Jesus, you're more than welcome to celebrate the, the supper with us. But there is a warning, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, that before you, you take of the bread and drink of the cup, this is a solemn occasion. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking back to where all our hope is. And all our hope is in Jesus and His blood and His righteousness. It's a solemn occasion for us. Therefore, we need to examine ourselves. If you're trusting in Christ, repenting of your sin, by all means, take it. But if you're harboring some sin, keeping it away, let the, let the cup pass by. Deal with the Lord later on that. But I encourage you to confess your sins and make amends to make it right today. First opportunity. So let's pray. Father, I would pray as we think here about celebrating the, the Lord's Supper together. May um, Leviticus 17 just enrich our understanding about the blood, that life is in the blood. Uh, the blood of Jesus shed for us is where our life is. God, not just physical life, but spiritual life as well. So, Lord, I would pray that you would um, visit with us and meet with us this hour. Oftentimes, the Lord's Supper time is called communion because it's a time of communing with you in a special, united way that's God just not done other times. Help us to focus, reflect upon, upon the death of Christ. God, finding some aspect of what His blood has accomplished for us and rejoicing in that. So Lord, be with us and may you be worshipped today. May we reflect and remember everything that Christ has done for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.